guys this morning. If you're new or we haven't met, my name's Jamie. I'm the guy who most weeks gets to stand up here and open up and expound God's word as we dive into the scriptures week in and week out as the church gathered along with those who may be coming into this place exploring the truth claims of Christianity. It's already March, which is crazy, which means that we're on the cusp of what I call spring A. People ask, like, what are your favorite seasons? Fall is number one for me. Spring B is number two for me, which is post-pollen spring. So we're, we're like on the verge of yellow dust spring, and then we'll be into my favorite, my second favorite season of the year. Everybody's healing up on the men from all the sickness too, which is great. Um, if, you're, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, um, we're steadily working our way through the book of 2 Corinthians just to catch you up to speed. We started on that book of the Bible back in January. It's gonna carry us through the end of May sermon series entitled Light of the Gospel. I've um, interestingly had more people than usual on any given Sunday and then during the week via email or text share words of encouragement about how God's been at work in and through our study of this book of the Bible more than the Sermon on the Mount, more than Ecclesiastes. In my mind, I kind of have these expectations and uh, Second Corinthians because it oftentimes goes unnoticed, kind of makes its way to the, the bottom of the list oftentimes for many in their study of the scriptures. Um, just not to say I didn't have high expectations, but the, the response level has been really intriguing. Um, it should be uh, of no surprise, though, on the basis of the nature of this follow-up letter to the church in Corinth. As I mentioned last week, we're talking about a book that's highly theological in its expressions of some of the deepest truths in all of the Bible, it's a book that's highly doxological in invoking worship and praise of the God it reveals, and it's a book that's highly practical in helping us to see what it is to live our lives in light of the gospel so that as it pertains to the holistic experience of the Christian life, the head, the heart, and the hands, you might say, we should expect our minds to be renewed, our affections to be awakened, and our decisions to be impacted by this glorious book of the Bible centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so let's not waste any time. Let's get into this book. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll be in verses 11 through 21 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I think there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you nearby. Feel free to use that Bible. Feel free to take that Bible if you don't own a Bible. Um, let me go ahead and pray for us because we've got a good bit of ground to cover this morning. God, thank you for revealing yourself to us in nature, in those who bear your very image, and particularly and specifically in the scriptures where you reveal this great plan of redemption in Jesus Christ to us. As Paul is going to say in different words this morning, um, we're meant to be stunned by the gospel. And so as I prayed in the back room in our pre-service prayer before we all stepped in this auditorium just a few minutes ago. I pray that you would do that thing that happens in the hearts of children every time Christmas rolls around. It doesn't matter whether they've experienced it uh, once, half a dozen times, a dozen times, there's still this sense of wonder. I pray that, that we would be awestruck, that we would find our hearts awakened, leaping in our chest at the very truths that we are about to engage, this wonder of the gospel, this wonder of reconciliation and justification in Jesus Christ. God, would you, would you move, um, particularly in a context in which many of us have heard these things 
hundreds of times, maybe even a thousand times. Spirit of God, we invite you to move in power. We need you. We're desperate for you, myself included. We invite you to mightily work in this place, in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this morning, in, in a, a, a brief set of power-packed verses, we're going to dive into uh, what would ultimately make it into two full chapters of most systematic theology books. The chapter on reconciliation and, and the chapter on justification. Reconciliation meaning what Jesus has done to deal with the hostility problem between us and God. Justification having to do with what Jesus has accomplished in dealing with the guilt problem that we have in standing in the cosmic courtroom of the divine. One of the frustrations that I have coming into this morning is I want to speak comprehensively to these things, and there's no way to do that. Um, in fact, I would commend to you, you can go back to a series we did a few years back entitled Cruciform, where we looked at the various facets of the cross of Jesus Christ one at a time, and we actually devoted an entire sermon to this idea of reconciliation and another sermon to this idea of justification, both of which Paul is gonna hit on this morning. I'll give you some of the highlights this morning so that if you do go back and podcast those old sermons, you'll probably encounter some overlap there, and, and rightly so, I think, right? The doctrines of reconciliation and justification have not changed since we did the Cruciform series a few years ago. I think you would rather me um, copy and paste some things, so to speak, rather than dream up a new doctrine of reconciliation or justification this morning. And so there is some overlap there, but, but I hope that the highlight reel, so to speak, this morning will suffice. Paul doesn't comprehensively unpack any of these things for us, and yet there's so much here in these verses that are meant to stun us, as you just heard me pray a moment ago. As you dive into verse 11, Paul is picking up the argument where he left off in verse 10, where he says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul knew that, that he himself would give account for his stewardship of the ministry that, that God had given him, knowing that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Going back to verse 10, Paul made it his mission to persuade others of the beauty and hope of the gospel, that those without Christ might turn to him and know something of the mercy and forgiveness found in him, and that those in Christ might keep seeing and savoring him, storing up treasures in heaven, chapter five, verse 10, and bringing holiness to completion, chapter seven, verse one. Paul goes on to say at the end of verse 11, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For those who have been around for the better part of this series, you know that the Apostle Paul is defending his credibility as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that there are those opponents who have come in and are proclaiming something different and are looking at the sufferings of the Apostle Paul and declaring that he must not be a man who is in right standing with God on the basis of his weaknesses and struggles. Paul saw himself as completely transparent before the Lord, just as transparent as he would someday be in appearing before that very judgment seat of Jesus. And he also trusted that he was an open book to those in Corinth, both in message and conduct. 
It's the same kind of language here in verses 11 and 12 that Paul used back in chapter four where he talked about having renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. This refusal to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Commending himself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That Paul's ministry is not motivated by financial gain. He's not in it for the book deals, nor is it uh, motivated by approval of man, a desire for increased acceptance and popularity. And, And what that means is that he's not under any pressure to hide his motivations, his intentions. He's not out to tactically cover up his intentions, nor is he under any sort of pressure to dilute the gospel, to make the message of Christianity more palatable to others by watering it down. He's under no pressure to deceive his hearers, to manipulate them in order to get what he wants out of them. Paul understands that there is no other gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that's our message. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no need to distort it. There's no need to dilute it. There's no need to disassemble it. Paul's message here in chapter five in reiterating that point, it's that the Corinthians might be able to respond to those who are peddling something other than the gospel. Those who boast, as he says, about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart, which is what many scholars believe to be a reference to 1 Samuel chapter 16, the anointing of David as king. If you're familiar with that story, many thought that David's older brother, Eliab, was the far more likely candidate for kingship on the basis of his stature, his outward appearance. And yet we're told in 1 Samuel 16, 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Like David, Paul wasn't a man of of great stature. His suffering's an indication of his weakness. Not much according to the world's standards, yet radically transformed by the power of the gospel. Paul's boast, it wasn't in his, his oratory skills. It wasn't in his external appearance. It wasn't in his impressive accomplishments. His boast was in the Spirit's work in his heart, that new covenant work of the Spirit. He says, verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Paul was severely misunderstood by, by his opponents who apparently accused him of being out of his mind, that That word translated beside ourselves in the Greek, it means out of place or out of mind. It's the same word used in Mark's gospel account when Jesus's family accused him of losing it. We're left to speculate as to why, but Paul was being accused of being a little off his rocker. Maybe on the basis of his beliefs, which to many were a little too far-fetched. Maybe on the basis of his intense passion and commitment to the gospel, which to many was a little too radical, maybe on the basis of his ecstatic experiences with the Lord, which to many were a little too mystical. We don't really know. But what we do know is that what Paul says here is, just know that no matter what my seeming state of mind might appear to be, nothing I do, nothing I say is with myself in view. I'm committed to the glory of God and the good of his people. It is for God, it is for you. Love for God, love for neighbor. Paul boils down the law there. So simple and yet so nonsensical in the eyes of many. He goes on in verse 14 
to make further sense of, of what he's saying in verse 13, he says, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who, might, uh, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The, the word control here, the love of Christ controls us. That word in the original language, it literally means hemmed in, like a, like a river that flows between its banks. We're, we're all hemmed in by something, I would argue. And that something shapes the direction in which our thoughts, our emotions, and our decisions flow. The Apostle Paul was hemmed in by the love of Christ. Christ's affection for him being the very banks of the river of his life, you might say. Shaping the direction of his thoughts so that when Paul articulates his thoughts, as you read the letters he's written that have made it into the canon of Scripture, you get a, a clear indication that the gospel is informing his thinking, right? Shaping the direction of his emotions. You see, Paul's emotions and affections wake, awakened over and over again in his writings, all informed by the gospel. You see, the shaping of the direction of his actions informed and shaped by that very gospel of Jesus Christ. A love that Paul declares is expressed in Jesus dying for us as our representative. The word all, to be clear, not a support of universalism, the idea that every person will be saved. I mean, Paul has already declared in this very book of the Bible, chapter two, verse 16, that we are a fragrance from death to death for some. That there are those whose minds are blinded, chapter four, verse four, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That according to chapter 11, verse 15, there are false apostles, Paul says, whose end will correspond to their deeds. In the words of one commentator, only those who appropriate Christ's death in faith are included in the word all. Paul declares that those of us who have appropriated Christ's death in faith, to use the language of that commentator, we are now reckoned as having died too united with Jesus in his death, the penalty for our sin paid for. Paul talks this way elsewhere in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. United with him, not only in his death, but also in his resurrection. Raised to walk in newness of life, that we might no longer live for ourselves, but the one who died and was raised for our sake. Paul essentially says we're, we're not our own. We were bought with a price. That's the language he uses in the prequel, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. The precious blood of Jesus poured out for us, his love compelling our obedience. Sam Storms in his commentary says it this way. He says, here's what controls constrains and impels me, Paul says. It is that Jesus chose not to hate me though I was hateful, but to love me though I was unlovely and gave himself for me that I might now live for him. One of the questions I would ask this morning, what, what hymns you in? What shapes the direction in which your thoughts, your affections, your decisions flow? Is it the gospel? Is it the love of Christ? Paul goes on to say in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul had once looked at, at others 
through a different set of eyes, you might say, making his assessment of others on the basis of something other than the gospel. Really easy to do, right? I think we're all guilty of this in some regard. In our context, on the basis of the way a person dresses, perhaps, the color of their skin, the kind of home they live in, the kind of career path that they're on, their social status, the number of followers they have on social media, and on and on we could go. The gospel gave Paul a completely different set of lenses so that he will go on to say in this morning's passage, in the very next verse, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The gospel gave Paul eyes to see any and all who are in Christ as forgiven, redeemed, spirit-indwelt new creations. And the gospel gave Paul eyes to see any and all who are not in Christ as people in desperate need of Christ. The, The veil no longer in front of his eyes, no longer blinded by the veil, to use that language of chapter two and and chapter three. And not just with other people, but also with respect to Jesus. Paul had once even looked at Jesus through a different set of eyes, right? Jesus was a blasphemer in the eyes of the pre-converted Saul of Tarsus, a rightly crucified heretic and false Messiah whose followers deserve to be persecuted. Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 5, no more. I now have eyes to see and savor Jesus Christ. He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's the pearl of great price. In the words of of one commentator, the shadow of Christ's cross fell across Paul's view and it changed everything. He, He now saw Jesus as the supremely valuable crucified and risen savior and king and others through the lens of the gospel of that supremely valuable Jesus Christ. So that he would go on to say in verse 17, very famous verse, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're a Christian, you're not who you once were. You've been made new by the same one who fashioned the universe. Going back to chapter four, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness in allusion to creation has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's miraculous, creational, illuminating work of regeneration, the new birth. One of the most eye-opening aspects of my study this week was with respect to verse 17. As I began to look at some of the original language and the various translations that could be drawn from the original language, that word behold can also be translated as look or be stunned. Be stunned, Paul says, by the gospel. Be stunned that you've been made new in Christ, Christian. Marvel at the miraculous, creational, illuminating work of God's sovereign grace in your life. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new covenant, a new name, a new standing, a new home, a new indwelling power, a new destiny. The enemy would have us believe, would he not, that none of those things are true. Not just by the day, but by the moment. It's why we fight so hard to grow in gospel fluency as a church that that we might declare to our own hearts and to each other all that's true of us and for us in Jesus Christ. That if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're blood-bought. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're forgiven and empowered. 
All this, verse 18, Paul says, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. All this is from God. It's his miraculous, creational, illuminating work that establishes us as new creations, reconciling us to himself. Here's where Paul really begins to deep dive into the fullness of what Jesus has accomplished. In other words, the basis of why we should be stunned. Reconciliation means to to restore to friendship. It means to, to replace hostility with peace. It implies an original friendship followed by an obstacle creating hostility in that very relationship followed by an overcoming of that obstacle. Like every literature class you've ever taken, right? Starts off conflict resolution. Like that's, that's what this doctrine ultimately is in summation. The, the original friendship aspect makes sense, right? If we go back to the earliest chapters of the Bible where we see that there was perfect harmony between God and man in the beginning, a harmony that was disrupted, ruined, in fact, when man fell in the garden. As a result of sin, we know, Scripture tells us that God's image bearers became his enemies. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, Paul elsewhere talks about this idea of reconciliation where he says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, by Jesus' blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Some take that phrase, while we were enemies, and, and use it to argue that man has hostility toward God, but that God doesn't have hostility towards sinful man. And the Bible certainly makes clear that sinful man is hostile toward God. Make no mistake about it. Colossians 1.21, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Romans 8.7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That as a result of sin, man is hostile toward God in every way imaginable, intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, spiritually, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem with that one-sided view of reconciliation, it doesn't jive with the way the New Testament writers talk about that idea of reconciliation elsewhere. Matthew chapter five, verses 23 and 24. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In Jesus' example there in Matthew chapter five, it's not you who has something against your brother. Rather, it's your brother who has something against you. The hostility is toward you. You need to be reconciled and it has to do with the fact that your brother has a grievance against you. In the same way, it's not only that we as rebellious sinners have hostility toward God, it's that God has hostility toward us. Donald McLeod in his book, Christ Crucified, I've shared this quote before. He says, Eden was the place where God walked, where humans lived in harmony with their maker, with each other and with their environment, and where eternal life was within their grasp. Now their situation is changed irrevocably. 
Eden is behind them, and at the gate stands a flaming sword. The divine holiness, the flaming anger of God, now stands between mankind and paradise. Humanly speaking, he says, the way back to eternal life is closed, and closed not by mankind's no to God, but by God's no to mankind. Anyone who dares to go back must reckon with the flaming holiness of offended deity. That's what sin does. So that reconciliation is not the changing of our attitude toward God. Reconciliation is God overcoming the hostility that he has toward us as rebellious sinners. Leon Morris in his book, The Atonement, says, Clearly it is God's demand that we live holy lives that is the root cause of the problem. As long as he is angry with the selfishness, the disregard of the needs of others, the general attitude of lovelessness that the Bible calls sin, the attitude of God is going to be an important factor. Indeed, the important factor. We cannot get a glimmering of an understanding of what the New Testament understands by Christ's atoning work unless we see that God is hostile to every evil thing and every evil person. If men are to be forgiven, something must be done about this hostility. There can be no fellowship between God and man as long as God is persisting in a demand to which men are indifferent. That is simply to perpetuate the enmity, the hostility, he says. In other words, and this is significant in Paul's teaching here in 2 Corinthians 5, reconciliation doesn't ultimately have to do with our hostility toward God. It ultimately has to do with God's hostility toward us as rebellious sinners. And what that means is that we can't just change our attitude toward God and call ourselves good, reconciled with him. God's disposition toward us has to change a disposition that you and I cannot change by way of our own efforts, our own merits. If my neighbor has a problem with me because I'm not caring for the lawn well, I can go grab the lawnmower or the clippers, I can remove the cause of hostility and I can reconcile that relationship. The problem with the hostility that God has toward us is that we can't remove the cause. The cause of the hostility that God has toward us is sin and we can't make it go away. We can't sweep it under the rug. It's why Paul declares that reconciliation must be of divine initiative. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Paul says, reconciliation is God's doing. It's the Father's doing by the death of his son. Coming back to Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Paul says, were reconciled. That's a past tense verb. Right? It's rooted in a past tense historical event, namely the death of the son. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, coming back to that uh, set of verses. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciled in his body of flesh. Reconciled by Jesus' death. That's a work of reconciliation that happened before you were born. 2,000 years ago on a Roman splintered wooden cross. Let that comfort you when you hear Jesus declaring, it is finished. It's done. Reconciliation is a past tense work of God in overcoming his hostility toward his rebellious enemies and the overcoming of that hostility is by the shed blood of Jesus. To again quote Donald McLeod, this was the great reconciling moment. Not our change of heart and attitude, but Calvary. Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. 
that the ultimate work of reconciliation is not us reconciling ourselves to God, it's God reconciling himself to us, a work without which we would all be left hopeless. John Piper says it this way, he says, God accomplished reconciliation, that is, God provided the foundation of reconciliation, he purchased the privilege of reconciliation outside of us. Before we were on the scene or had done anything to help, the decisive work of reconciling was done. When there is sin, there must be punishment. Where we have belittled the glory of God, it must be vindicated. And the belittling of God shown to be as horrible as it really is. That is what the death of Christ did. And he did it without our help or partnership. Or again, to quote Leon Morris, It is what Christ has done, not what man does in changing his attitudes that brings about reconciliation. Christ has a greater part, he says, in the Christian way than merely to point out to men that they have some wrong ideas about God. He is at the very center of Christianity and his death on the cross is the heart of it all. Like To use that imagery in the garden again, it's Jesus who came under the flaming sword of God's judgment, opening the way back to paradise and ultimately to a restored harmonious relationship with the living God. The record of debt that stood against us, making us enemies of God, was nailed to the cross, Colossians chapter two. And the record of righteousness gifted us in Christ establishes us as friends of God. Paul will go on to say as much in verse 21, but, but first he presents us with the horizontal implications, you might say, the interpersonal and relational implications of God's reconciling us to himself, giving us this ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That word ambassadors, it, it really in many ways, parallels our own understanding and use of that term, describing one who represents a nation or a kingdom in communication with other nations or kingdoms. That as Christians, Paul's arguing, we don't speak in our own name, nor do we act on our own authority. We represent the kingdom of Jesus. We represent King Jesus himself. He is our supreme authority. God making his appeal through us, our imploring others, pleading with them on behalf of Christ. That, that we have this message, and you know this, Christian, to champion to the world, the offer of peace with God that can be known only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. I, I'd be doing a great disservice to this text, to this very verse this morning, if I didn't implore any and all gathered in this place who are apart from Christ to be reconciled to God this very moment. If you're not a Christian, according to the scriptures, you're an enemy of God. And there's nothing that you can do to reconcile yourself to him. There's no change of attitude, no change of disposition toward him that will remove that hostility, that enmity between you and him. Coming back to Romans 5, 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Reconciliation cannot be earned. Reconciliation cannot be worked for. Reconciliation cannot be suffered for. All we can do is receive it. It's a gift from God. If you're not a Christian, I implore you to use Paul's language on behalf of Christ to receive the gift of reconciliation secured by the blood of Jesus this morning. 
Paul goes on to say in verse 21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. The sinless Jesus made sin, meaning that our sins were put upon him. He was punished in our place. Our record of guilt nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ so that we can be confident that God will never make us pay the penalty for sins that were paid by Jesus. Let me say that again because many of us will forget that before the day's over with. We can be confident, if you're in Christ, that God will never make us pay the penalty for sins that were paid for by Jesus. Holy smokes. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Our sin imputed to him. And in exchange, his righteousness imputed to us so that we're not only acquitted before God, we're not just brought back to square one. If that were the case, we'd just sin a moment from then and ruin it all over again. We're not only acquitted, the Bible says, before God, but declared righteous in his sight. That if you're a Christian, Jesus hasn't just taken your guilty record upon himself, but his righteousness has been reckoned to your account too. So that when God thinks about you, he thinks of you as not only forgiven, but as possessing the very righteousness, the very perfect obedience of Jesus. 16th century German theologian, Zacharias Ursinus, says it this way, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Or in the words of another 16th century theologian, Richard Hooker, he says, such we are in the sight of God the Father as is the very Son of God himself. It's unbelievable, and yet true for all who are in Christ. God's great work of reconciliation, Paul says, so that when you meet your maker, Christian, you will not meet an enemy, but a friend. That the hostility that once existed between you and God is no longer. Where there was once hostility, there's now peace. When you envision God as some angry curmudgeon in the sky waiting to zap you with lightning bolts at your first, first or next failure, you're, you're misinformed on the doctrine of reconciliation in Jesus Christ. His face is no longer turned away from you, but rather turned towards you with the light of reconcilement shining in your direction. Behold, Paul says, be stunned overwhelmed by the wondrous grace of God in Jesus Christ. Be hemmed in by that love. Allow it to direct your thinking. Allow it to, to shape and inform the direction of your affections. Allow it to shape your decisions. The love of Christ compelling you. Now an ambassador for him. Now a minister of this stunning reconciliation in him.